Amen. You may be seated. If you've got your Bible today, will you turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, or today's text is printed on page 10 in your bulletin. Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, the first 22 verses. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise and to hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your, anger to be, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not why were the former days better than these, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have yourself cursed others. This is the word of the Lord. And we ask for your leading through this now, Father, in Jesus' good name. Amen. What I want to do today is actually a little more of a meditation than a sermon. I want to start with something that is maybe a little bit elusive in the realm of our, of our lived experience. You guys ever met a person who has really earnest beliefs. You know, they, they, they've got a belief system and they're committed to it and they're passionate about it and they've got deep convictions. And, 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 you know, a very decent person, you know, not someone you'd be kind of worried about your loved ones spending time with, you know, just a very decent moral person. So, you know, they, they have strong beliefs, they're very decent morally, and they're actually very knowledgeable. Like when you talk with them, they know a lot. But they're a little crazy. They're a little off somehow. You know, there's a quality in people that you can feel. I use that word on purpose. There's a quality in people you can feel, when, especially when it's missing. It's a little bit hard to identify, actually, this quality. You could call this quality a kind of balance. You know, you guys know my father uh, was a coach and a, and a phys ed teacher, and so I learned a lot about athletics just listening to him And one of the things he would talk about is walking. Walking's a funny sort of thing when you think about it, because in walking, you actually have to go out of balance or you can't walk. 
But of course, the key to walking steadily is that you're able to keep your balance. You know, if I am just continue going out of balance, I'm going to kind of fall on Lou. And, you know, the ability to walk and go slightly out of balance, but then I'm able to get right back in balance, you know, as any of you athletes know, that's that, that ability to kind of keep your feet under you, you know, the idea of a low center of gravity, that you're not going off too far either way. What that balance produces is not a static rigidness where you never move, but it's this quality I'm trying to get at in people, it's this ability you can feel in people, especially when it's not there, (laughs) the ability to move through life, to move through the world of ideas, the world of relationships, the world of problems, the world of experiences, and somehow keep both feet under you. You know, it's often not what I hear people say. It's not what people think. It's what they leave out that I find most troubling. They can go here, they just can't seem to hold on to this as well. And it produces an imbalance. The Bible speaks about unstable souls, unsteady people. And what you find is missing in unstable people, it's not zeal, God knows. It's not conviction. Frankly, it's not noble intentions. I rarely meet a person who just has evil intentions. People think good intentions are such a big deal. The problem is we all think we've got them, and many times it probably is even true. That's not what's missing, and it's not knowledge. What's missing, I think, is what the Bible calls wisdom. Wisdom. I've come to believe it is possible to be an earnest Christian believer, a lover of righteousness, a storehouse of biblical and theological knowledge, and sorely lacking in wisdom. Sorely lacking. I love Ecclesiastes because Ecclesiastes is a book about finding and maintaining your balance on the rolling decks of life under the sun. Ecclesiastes is a book that challenges right answers that too easily become easy answers. It's a book that makes us wrestle with realities that just do not fit in our existing tidy little boxes, even the boxes that we feel very strongly we've derived from the Bible, and Ecclesiastes just kind of messes with those boxes. And what I want to do today for just a very few minutes is I just want to walk through the, I want to walk with this fellow. His name in Hebrew is Kohelet. It's a word that just means the preacher. I want to walk with the preacher, the writer of this book, on a brief excursion in the world of wisdom. And some of what we're going to see in this text is going to be very familiar to you, and some of it is actually going to stretch us, I think. But in stretching us, it's going to help us navigate more steadily in a world that, as you can see quite plainly, is increasingly, and I would even say more and more shockingly, turbulent. So I just want to talk a little bit about wisdom. And the first thing I'd like us to notice, because it's actually easy to miss, the first thing about wisdom I'd like us to notice here is that wisdom knows some things are better than others, and why? Wisdom knows some things are better than others, and why? It's the very first half of a verse. It seems so obvious. A good name, a good reputation is better. Do you notice that language? It's better than hot perfume, you know, hot cologne. Better than precious ointment. Can I ask you something? How do you know something's better? How can you use that word? Do you know, you cannot actually compare two things if you only have those two things. Have you ever thought about that? If I have thing A and thing B, 
It should be obvious if these are kind of, both these things are kind of existing in a total vacuum, there's no context at all, you could say A and B are not the same, they're different, you could differentiate them, but you actually couldn't compare them and say which is better if you only have those two things. You actually have to have something else that can give you an idea of which of these is actually better than the other. If I've got a fresh-picked orange and I've got a rotten orange, there's no way to actually determine which of these is better unless you and I have an idea of what a ripe, edible orange is. Do you follow? You just have two different oranges. The only way to know that one is better is if we actually have a third thing, which is some clear idea of what a ripe, edible orange is. And we can compare these two oranges to that third thing, and now we know which is better. If you ask who played a better chess game this week, Andrew or myself, in our chess match, the only way you have any idea which of us played better chess is if there is such a thing as a checkmate, as a winning game of chess. Because if there's no actual winning game, there's no checkmate, then all you could say is, you know, Andrew moved the white pieces this way, and Dad moved the black pieces this way, and there's no way to make any comparison if all you got is the black pieces and the white pieces. You have to have something else, a checkmate, that tells you which of these games was better. And so, for Kohelet, the preacher, to say, listen to me, people, doing good is better than smelling good, right? Doing the kinds of things that produce a good name for you among people who actually know you, that's better than just, you know, the best cologne and perfume that makes you smell great. He can only say that if there is such a thing as what I'm going to call, capital G, capital L, the good life to which one thing can be closer than the other. To say that a good name and the kind of stuff that goes into having a good reputation is better than just being flashy and, you know, smelling nice it's closer to real goodness, it's better. Well, that assumes that there actually is a good life to which these things can be compared. Well, can we say any more about that good life, capital G, capital L, out there? Well, you can see right away in that first half verse that clearly that good life, whatever it is, it's about morals, not money. This is very interesting. You have to be a certain kind of person to have a good name. You can't buy it. You can buy perfume. You can't actually buy a good reputation. You have to actually be something. You have to actually do something. You, it's not just a commodity. The good life that wisdom knows about, it's a life that involves virtue. Today we would probably call it character. Skills that serve. Real usefulness to people because you know some stuff and you can do some stuff and you have a heart that wants to do some stuff. That's the kind of person that develops a good reputation, and that's better than just all the flash and glamour and bling. You know, the ancients had this very clearly in view, not just, you know, the, the, the Hebrews, but the ancients in general, many of them understood that it is pursuing that good life, that's really what people are for. That's why people exist. Pursuing that good life is what fulfills your very nature. The ancients would have said that you actually, as a human being, made for that, made for goodness, made for virtue and skill that serves, and all that that is the truly good life, not just the flash and show and the odor, you know, the aroma, but the real thing, they would have said that it is in pursuing that that you experience real freedom and real creativity because you're actually drawing forth your nature 
as opposed to doing violence to nature. Wisdom knows some things are better than others, and why? I, I, I stress this a little bit because you guys know that today, and, and you know, in what we could call our postmodern age, or however you want to characterize the, you know, the, the weirdness we find ourselves living in, it's actually, people actually would be dogmatic about this, that there is no good life. There is no capital G, capital L, good life. That actually would be something they would find hateful, many people. There is, here's what, here's, here's what there is. There is not any good life out there. What there is, is your instincts, your feelings, and your appetites. That's what, that's what you start from. Not some fantasy about a good life. What's real is your instincts, your feelings, and your appetites. And society, then, is not a place where I practice virtue, grow toward goodness, eventually, hopefully, develop a good name as someone who is virtuous toward my neighbor, you know, a, a person of honor, a person of reverence, a person of, who respects the dignity of others and does justice and loves mercy and all of that. Society is not the theater in which I grow toward the good. In our world today, society, beloved, you guys staying awake because this is important. This is the world you're living in. You've got to know this stuff. Society is not where I practice virtue. Society is where I assert my rights to have and do as I please. Because you see, in the postmodern view that we find ourselves in now, what stands between me and happiness is not something in me. See, in the ancient wisdom, the understanding was what stands between me and the good life is very often me. My lack of virtue, my lack of honor, my, some things in me need to change in order that I might become virtuous and become a skilled person who serves. But for the postmodern view, that what's real is my instincts, my feelings, my appetites, what stands between me and the happiness that I would, all, we, I would have and we would all have, we could all just fulfill our instincts and express our feelings and have our appetites fulfilled, what stands between me and that happiness is not something in me. What stands between me and happiness? Society. All the ways that society deprives people, oppresses people, represses people. Postmodern view is if we all had the exact same amount of precious ointment and we could all act unrestrained on the resulting sex appeal, this would be a happy society. That's actually what people think. If you had everything money could buy, and you had no repression of your instincts, people would be so chill. It'd be such a happy place to live. That's the dream. Do you know that kind of a world, which we're rapidly, I'm not sure building is the right word, but we are, we are making, that is a world that is ripe for profiteers and politicians. You can make a heck of a lot of money feeding people's instincts, feelings, and appetites. And my word, if you're a politician, man, this is for you because you can make yourself so powerful offering to people ways to have their instincts, feelings, and appetites fulfilled. And virtue is not even really in the conversation because there is no actual good life. Wisdom, beloved, is the art of betterment. It's the art, and I call it an art, not a science, because it's an art. It's the art of moving toward the good, the good life. We understand as believers in God that 
True wisdom is practiced in friendship with Him. Because God made all things, including us, by His wisdom, and what God created by wisdom, we cultivate by human wisdom. Wisdom is learning to skillfully cut with the grain, to become what you are, to help other things become what they are. That it's, wisdom is the art of betterment, practiced in friendship with God, and also practiced in friendship with others who are wiser and more skillful than we. We actually appreciate our fathers and grandfathers and great-great-great-great-great-grandparents because we understand there have been some people in this world who have been wiser and more skillful than we. We want to pass on wisdom and skill to generations to come. And it's interesting that for us as Christians, Christ is called the wisdom of God because we're told that in Christ, God is putting all things back together. And so in revealing to us how God is putting all things back together through Jesus and his kingdom, God has given us wisdom. So wisdom knows some things are better than others and why. The second thing I'd like you to notice in the text, and that is that wisdom draws meaning from mortality. It knows some things are better than others and why that is can even be the case. But the second thing you notice is that wisdom draws meaning from mortality because, you know, so far this seems, you know, pretty, I guess, encouraging, but then, you know, the preacher takes a real dark turn right away. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better. The day you die is better than the day you were born, you know, just to put it kind of, I don't know, bluntly. What's he saying? Because he says in verse 2, you know, the living are going to lay it to heart. You're going to die. It's the end of all mankind. The living lay that to heart. Now, there are two responses you can have to death. One response, I spent a lot of time around death recently. I'm going to be spending more time around death. I've been thinking about this a lot. There are two responses you can have as you stare into a grave that someone you love is being lowered into. You can either say, in view of death, life is a waste. In view of death, life is a waste. Or you can say, in view of death, don't waste your life. Do you know, it's funny, I've never heard that first speech at a funeral. I keep waiting to hear this speech at a funeral. You know, Aunt Gertie, she spent her entire life living for herself. She never wasted any time on anything unless it was for her. She got all she could. She did all she could to feel as good as she could in the time that she had. And now she's lost it all, so her life was really pointless. So let's all go back to our pointless lives with a reminder before us today of how utterly pointless they actually really are. Let's find some ways to feel good in whatever, you know, time we have left until the bubble finally pops and we are scrubbed from existence and memory. Have a nice day. You know, you'd you'd never actually hear that at a funeral, and yet it makes total sense. Given what a lot of people actually believe, that's what you ought to hear at funerals. Woody Allen would say that at funerals. He gave an interview in 2014 around the time he was making Magic in the Moonlight. Listen to what he said. This is genius. He's asked why his protagonists in his films tend to be neurotic people who feel that life is meaningless. And he says, well, I firmly believe, and I don't say this as a criticism, that life is meaningless. I'm not alone in thinking this, that there have been many great minds, far, far superior to mine, that have come to that conclusion. And unless somebody can come up with some proof or some example where it's not, I think it is. I'm not saying that one should opt to kill oneself. But the truth of the matter is, when you think of it, every, let's say, hundred years is a big flush. And everybody in the world is gone. And there's a new group of people, and then that gets flushed, and there's a new group of people, and this goes on and on interminably, and I don't want to upset you toward no particular end, no rhythm, 
No rhyme, no reason. And the universe, as you know from the best of physicists, is coming apart. And eventually there'll be nothing, absolutely nothing. All the great works of Shakespeare and Beethoven and Da Vinci, all that'll be gone. Now, not for a long time, but gone. Much shorter than you think, really, because the sun's going to burn out much earlier than the universe vanishes. So you don't have to wait for the universe to vanish. It'll happen earlier than that. So all this will be gone completely. There will be nothing. Absolutely nothing. No time, no space, nothing at all. Just zero. So what does it really mean to get exercised over trivial problems? That's why over the years I've never written or made movies about political things, because while they do have current critical importance, in the large, large scheme of things, you know, only big questions matter. And the answers to those big questions are very, very depressing. What I'd recommend, this is a solution I've come up with, is distraction. That's all you can do. You can get up. You can be distracted by your love life, by the, basque, by the baseball game, by the movies, by the nonsense. Can I get my kids into this private school? Will this girl go out with me Saturday night? Can I think of an ending for the third act of my play? Am I going to get the promotion in my office? All this stuff. But in the end, the universe burns out, so I think it's meaningless. And to be honest, my characters portray this feeling. Have a good weekend. It's brilliant. And it sounds like that's what the preacher is saying. The day of death is better than the day of birth, is what he's saying, you know, better to end a pointless existence than to begin one. Is that what he's saying? Or is he actually saying something very different? Is he rather saying a race well finished is better than a race well begun? Because we've already seen the preacher lives in a world of comparisons, doesn't he? Comparisons where there are some things that are closer to the good than others closer to what God made us for than others. Our life is not just dust and vapor that's going to vanish into the smoke of the universe vanishing. We were meant for the good life. As he said earlier in his book, God has put eternity in our heart, and we feel that. And death is a reminder of the urgency of the pursuit of virtue and goodness and pleasing God. Death, as you stare into a grave, forces this question upon you, and I've been thinking about it so much, am I really living well? Will I value what I'm doing at the end of the road? You know, you take life more seriously when you know it's going to end. And in the end, he tells us in verse 3, that sadness of face actually makes the heart glad. It brings joy as you find yourself making progress in the meaning that flows from mortality. Now, all this has been so far very familiar. Wisdom knows things, some things are better than others, and why? Wisdom draws meaning from mortality. All of that's pretty familiar territory, but now we get a dose of realism. Because there's a weird turn in verse 7. And the preacher Kohelet tells us something else, a third thing. He tells us, it is not unheard of for the wise to become fools. It is not unheard of for the wise to become fools. Oppression can drive the wise into madness. This is what he's saying. There is a fine line between wisdom and madness. It is incredibly easy for the wise to begin to serve an agenda other than God's agenda and make fools of themselves. The wise are not just not immune. I would even go so far as to say the wise may be uniquely susceptible to some vices that are mentioned here by the preacher. First, you'll notice the Kool-Aid of power. The Kool-Aid of power. Oppression. Oh, the wise can become oppressors they can actually end up taking a bribe. How on earth if they're so wise? Because wisdom is power. 
Wisdom is powerful. Knowledge is power. Wisdom is power. And actually, true wisdom uses power. You know, it's one thing to have great ideas, another thing to actually work them out, and that's where power comes in. There's nothing wrong with wisdom using power, but the reality is wisdom can also be used by power. Wisdom can serve the regime very well. And regimes will flatter the wise. Regimes will offer benefits to the wise for backing of the regime. And we have horrific examples within the last century of the wise, the people of God, getting in bed with power and the horrors that can result from that kind of an alliance where you become a madman with all of your wisdom because you got on board with programs of oppression and you've been bought for political gain by a regime. Impatience. You could argue that impatience is a particularly, it particularly afflicts the wise. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. There can be impatience because you know what? When you're wise and you see what needs to happen, this is the way things need to be. It can make you impatient with the slow, slow work of building knowledge. It takes a while to know enough to know to, to not just be dangerous, beloved. Can, can I just say that to you? I, I'm going to say something that's going to sound insulting, and I mean it for me too. You don't know very much. Most of you think you know a heck of a lot more than you actually know. That's true for me too. To build knowledge takes time. To build skill takes time. To build virtue, God knows, takes time. To build humble influence takes time. Your ideas don't matter if you have no credibility. I've got such great ideas. You probably do. You have... No influence without credibility, and credibility takes time to build, but you can get impatient in your pride, right? It's easy for the wise to fall into the impatience. And reactivity. Don't be quick in your spirit to become angry. Anger is a fool's errand. Oh, my word, have I heard so much anger in the last year. Outrage, screaming. Do not be quick in your spirit to become angry. Don't let your wisdom make you Harsh, make you strident, make you cynical, make you hateful, make you so enamored of the ideal you can't handle the actual. I've said this to you before, the ancient philosopher kings, it was said they were useless as citizens because their heads were so full of the ideal city they couldn't live in any actual city. Don't let that be us. And sentimentality, oh, the old days. It's not from wisdom you say this. Wisdom's looking for what God is, the opportunities God is creating now. Learn from the past. Stop pining for the past. God is now. What's he doing now? That's the question of wisdom. And overconfidence. Because wisdom's like money. And when you're rolling in it, it makes you confident. You can be lured into a sense of invincibility whether with money or wisdom, lured into a sense that success should come as a kind of a matter of course. Wisdom like money. And then along comes God. And there's a fourth thing, and I'll be done with this. 
that the Kohelet says, it's not unheard of for the wise to become fools, but he also says a, a, a last thing, it's also not unheard of for the wise to try to be wiser than God. It's not unheard of for the wise to try to be wiser than God, because along comes God and he starts making things crooked. I am stunned. I'm sorry if I'm sounding a little bit cranky today. I'm not, I'm not cranky, I love you guys, I'm burdened. You can talk to me later about why. I'm stunned by how Christians are not prepared for unsettling providences. I don't, I don't know what we're expecting. When God makes things crooked, when he creates days of adversity, I'm just surprised at how many Christians start going to pieces. The Bible's really not shy about this, beloved. The Bible talks about it all, the, all over the place. Wisdom, like wealth, preserves your life, except when it doesn't. You got lots of money, it'll preserve your life until it doesn't. You got lots of wisdom, it'll preserve your life until it doesn't. And you've got the, the righteous who dies in his righteousness and the wicked who prolongs his life in his wickedness. And if your eyes are all just on what you can see and you're not living by faith in God, you're going to get rattled when it feels like God's helping the wrong people. God has made the day of adversity as well as the day of prosperity. You cannot try to use wisdom and righteousness to guarantee outcomes. Be not overly righteous and don't make yourself too wise. Why destroy yourself? If you think that your wisdom and righteousness somehow guarantee outcomes, you're setting yourself up to kind of melt down, to self-destruct. Better is better because it's better, not because it's a formula to get an enviable life. Can we agree on that? Better is better because it's better, not because it's a formula to get an enviable life. We need to be prepared for that. On the other hand, the preacher is a good preacher. He's careful. He doesn't want us to swing the pendulum the other direction. Don't also, on the other hand, go off the other cliff, be overly wicked, be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Because it remains true, even though it may seem sometimes like it's hard to tell whether it works out better for the righteous or the wicked. It is also the case that if you sin, you plunge yourself into ruin. Why do it? So much of wisdom's balance is holding on to one true thing and not letting go of the other. It is both. One thing I'd like to get in a lot more Christians' heads is both and thinking. A little less either or thinking. More both and thinking. It is both true that there's no guarantee and it's true that it's better to serve God. He who fears God won't go off the deep end of being overly righteous in a way that's trying to guarantee outcomes and won't go off the cliff of wickedness and self-destruction. Verse 18, hold on to the one. From the other, don't withdraw your hand. And when you're really confused about this, because sometimes it hurts like crazy, remember Jesus. Because in him you will see something that never loses its mystery. How God used the death of the impeccably righteous one to give life to the utterly unrighteous and ungodly. That's the mystery of grace. And you'll notice the fruit of this. God-fearers can do two things. God-fearers, in verses 19 and 20, they can seek the benefits of wisdom without pride or presumption, 
Wisdom gives strength to a wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. The United States kind of, you know, could use some wise people right now, dare I say. And wisdom gives you strength that 10 rulers in a city don't have. You can seek the benefits of wisdom when you fear God, but you also remember verse 20. There's not a single righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Don't be too full of yourself. It's not about you. It's all of grace. And you can seek the benefits of wisdom without pride and presumption. That's one thing God-fearers can do. The second thing God-fearers can do, you'll notice in verses 21 and 22, they can live among sinners with a lot of grace. Because when it's most tempting, and in fact it's most possible to just really smash other people for their sins, you know, don't listen too closely to people talking because you're going to hear your servant cursing you and you're going to want to get out your stick and beat the bleep out of him because he's your servant. Just remember one thing. Your heart knows many times you yourself have cursed others. So even when it comes to your servant, you've got a lot of grace because you're a sinner too. And when you fear God, you'll be gracious. Ah, beloved, what a world we're living in. You know what our world is now? People over here screaming, Axe! People over here screaming, Anti-Axe! A few people in the middle saying, Well, you know, maybe neither X nor Anti-Axe. You know, can't we all just get along? That's the world. Axe! Anti-Axe! Back and forth. Wisdom steps into this mess. Says, what about why? Here's the x-axis. You all ever notice there's a y-axis? Nobody's talking about the y-axis. How about the y-axis? Now we've got two-dimensional reality. Now people are screaming, x-axis, y-axis. The y's step in and say, have you ever noticed there's a z-axis? A whole other dimension of reality. Are we thinking about that? Nobody's talking about that. Now I've got three-dimensional reality because wisdom knows something. It doesn't get pulled into the polarities. Why? Because there is a power and there is a wisdom and there is a grace at work in our world that transcends all the tidy little boxes. And that power and that grace and that wisdom which is God's alone and is restoring all things in Christ alone, that wisdom can unite us all as we are all willing to bow our knees and accept the very first condition of true wisdom. And what is it, beloved? Fear God. Fear God. God help us. In Jesus' name, amen.